This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you again, Chris. You know, we always put the emphasis on the securities at the yeah. at the top of the episodes right. here. I think we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction today. Uh, you know, last fall, we had a conversation with Commissioner Caroline Pham from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. At the time, I noted that commodities regulation and enforcement is a, a little bit of a, of a hole in our mm-hmm. catalog. That's right. Uh, we didn't commit to doing more commodities related content at the time, but I know it's been in the back of my mind. Uh, so I just as a reminder for anyone who didn't tune in, Commissioner Pham uh, featured on a special double episode. Those are episodes 104 and 105. If you go back, we talked about the CFTC's regulatory mandate, crypto regulation and CFTC enforcement broadly. The latter point is really where we want to pick up the conversation today. Uh, we have two experts joining us on the show. One who is the architect of the DOJ Fraud Section's Criminal Commodities and Derivatives Enforcement Program, and the other served as the head of the CFTC's Division of Enforcement. So we're going to get both the criminal and the civil perspectives here on the program today. I feel like this is going to be a great episode for folks like me who are not attorneys, but who have to deal with, I mean, work with them all the time. (laughs) Definitely going to help illuminate some of those issues. But let me jump in quickly and do a brief bio for one of our guests. Avi Perry is a partner at the law firm Quinn Emanuel, where he co-chairs the firm's securities litigation group and co-chairs the firm's Commodities and Derivatives Group. Prior to joining Quinn, Avi served as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice, most recently as Chief of the Market Integrity and Major Frauds Unit in the Criminal Division's Fraud Section. In that role, Avi oversaw all of the Fraud Section's corporate and individual investigations and prosecutions involving securities, commodities, digital assets, and government procurement fraud. Avi was instrumental in building the Fraud Section's Criminal Commodities and Derivatives Enforcement Program, spearheading prosecutions involving spoofing in the futures market, benchmark price manipulation, cross-market manipulation, and the first ever commodities insider trading charges under Rule 180.1 of the Commodity Exchange Act. Avi also oversaw some of the department's most significant securities matters, including short-selling investigations and the first prosecution of insider trading under a Rule 10b-51 executive trading plan, one of our favorite topics here. Avi, welcome to Insecurities. Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you and Kurt. Yeah, and since Avi, you're you're a colleague of mine, Chris would not let me read your bio, but That's I'm right. equally <laughs> excited to have you on the program. I'm grateful for that. <laughs> All right, as I said, we have two guests today. The second of which is uh, Jamie McDonald. Jamie is a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell and a member of both the firm's Securities and Commodities Investigations Practice and its Commodities Futures and Derivatives Group. From 2017 to 2020, Jamie served as Director of Enforcement at the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, 
where he was responsible for all aspects of the CFTC's enforcement program, including its investigations and litigations, market surveillance, and whistleblower office. Among his accomplishments at the CFTC, Jamie created the first task forces within the Division of Enforcement focused on manipulation and spoofing, insider trading, foreign corruption, anti-money laundering and the Bank Secrecy Act, and digital assets. He also coordinated the CFTC's enforcement activities with the Department of Justice, the SEC, and numerous international regulators. Prior to joining the CFTC, Jamie served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York, where he investigated and prosecuted white-collar criminal offenses, among other things. Jamie, uh, a sparkling resume. We're really excited to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Curtis. Good to be with you guys. Well, I think, Kurt, we've got to start this episode with one of my favorite segments, as I mentioned before, as a non-attorney, who does what, right? And I think if we listen to both backgrounds, we hear a lot of the same words, insider trading, spoofing, uh, you know, other regulatory issues. So we want to start with really a discussion of where those Venn diagrams might overlap and, and where they differ. And so the DOJ's fraud section and the CFTC's Division of Enforcement are both responsible for enforcing specific aspects of the Commodity Exchange Act and associated regulations. Uh, I would love to know where the CFTC's jurisdiction ends and DOJ's begins or vice versa. I don't know how to best verse that or areas where there might be an overlapping you know, jurisdiction and, and maybe even some shared work. So, Jamie, it sounds like you really liaised between a lot of these groups in your background. Talk to us a bit about the CFTC's view on the concurrent jurisdiction of the CFTC and the Department of Justice. Yeah, Chris, it's a really good question. And, you know, I think the way to think about it really is in terms of overlap, especially when you're talking about cases where DOJ would have jurisdiction, where the CFTC also has jurisdiction. The way that the CEA is written is that any violation of the CEA, if done willfully, could be prosecuted criminally. That's where the Department of Justice comes in. The CFTC has broader jurisdiction. So for regulatory type offenses, reporting type offenses, things that reporting type violations, things that wouldn't have the intent or willfulness requirement. The CFTC can do can bring those types of enforcement actions without rising to willfulness or some sort of intent. But where there's willful conduct, really any violation of the CEA could give rise to a Department of Justice investigation and ultimately potentially prosecution. And so what that means, I think, is that for some core set of uh, potential violations of the CEA, if you're thinking about fraud, if you're thinking about manipulation, if you're thinking about other types of offenses that would have that, that kind of requisite intent, those are the kinds of things that the Department of Justice would have jurisdiction over. Now, the Department of Justice has had jurisdiction over those types of offenses for a while, though I think you've really seen an increase. Really, I think you can tie it to Dodd-Frank, but really probably the last five, seven, eight years an increase in the coordination between Department of Justice and the CFTC, and I think increased activity, increased activity and increased focus at DOJ on these types of cases. And so you could think about it as a pyramid where the tip of the pyramid are the a relatively smaller number of cases, but the ones that may be at the top of that pyramid that have uh, willful or intentional conduct at issue where there'd be overlap between the CFTC and the Department of Justice. Avi, right? You come from maybe the other side of that coin from the DOJ side. How is Jamie wrong in what he just described? He, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, he's not. <laughs> understood. Understood. 
this is the rare instance in which no so so Jamie's exactly right. Look, you do have a lot of overlapping interest in the cases with the most egregious conduct, right? So on the DOJ side, you're looking for clear indicia of criminal intent, whether that's willfulness under the CEA or intent to defraud under the wire fraud statute, which also has been used to prosecute various commodities offenses. You're looking for uh, clear indicia um, that someone is doing something that they know they cannot do, right? That they're acting with bad intent. Look, at the DOJ side, you're also looking for other plus factors that would support a prosecution, right? So you're looking for uh, a high degree of victim impact, right? Cases that really matter to the folks that are harmed. You might be looking for repeat offenders, right? So if there's a person or financial institution that has been dinged before, whether civilly or criminally, that's going to have heightened interest for criminal prosecution authorities. But I think that the universe of cases that the DOJ is taking these days has broadened significantly. Within the fraud and manipulation landscape, DOJ is much more willing these days to take cases that are built around data. Right? So we, we, Jamie and I have talked a lot about sort of these data-driven prosecutions and, and civil enforcement actions that we both worked on quite a bit. DOJ is increasingly adept at using data. I think we'll probably talk more about this later. And the CFTC really has really has led on this as the SE has. And so, you know, cases cases that I think previously would have been a declination on the DOJ side, you're seeing a lot more interest in doing that kind of cases, whether it's spoofing type prosecutions or that fraud section just did a cherry picking fraudulent allocation case that I think, you know, you could probably expect to see more of those. But DOJ is much more willing to do that type of case these days. I will say, you know, Jamie mentioned this at the outset. There are a lot of the more regulatory type cases, registration only type cases that really you don't, you still don't have any meaningful DOJ interest in those. And that's for good reason, I think. I'm not aware, Jamie, maybe you are. I'm not aware of DOJ pursuing a registration only case yet. Uh, I, I can't see a world in which that's going to change anytime soon. Um, right. I wanted to follow up on one thing that Jamie said, because I I, I think you're right. Um, that there's been a lot more coordination between civil and criminal authorities over the past five to seven years. Um, you mentioned Dodd-Frank, but it, it didn't really start right after Dodd-Frank. I mean, why? Um, look, you know, I don't like to give you any credit, right? But I think if you compare the number of cases that were done in coordination during your tenure and, and even afterwards, there was a real uptick. Um, why, why do you think that that was? So, so it's a good question. I mean, I think the short answer is these things take a little while. If you think about post Dodd-Frank and you think about what the CFTC was doing after Dodd-Frank, a lot of what it was doing was writing its rules and bringing first of its kind enforcement actions under its new jurisdiction and thinking about what the scope of its jurisdiction would be and how it would implement its new authority. And then it started to bring, to bring more significant cases. And I think it took a little while for the relationship to build between the CFTC and the Department of Justice, such that DOJ kind of understood uh, the potential benefits from corporate enforcement program, from an individual commodities enforcement program, from a deterrence perspective, for DOJ to build up the expertise to be able to do these types of cases. You talked about data, which we'll talk about again, to, to, to have kind of a program that can ingest the data and understand it and figure out how to analyze it. Those things sort of take time, and I think there's a natural progression where you kind of need to have the first building blocks in place 
to be able to build out the broader program. And so I think one aspect of the answer is that there's some logic to the relationship between DOJ and the CFTC building out a little later in the progress in in in, in that progression. The second thing is that I, I think there was a recognition on the CFTC side. So one thing, Chris Kirk, you talk about the CFTC and the DOJ and how they work together and how they're similar, but they're also very different. And Avi kind of hit some of this. The CFTC has this has this whole regulatory and policy component that's totally separate from enforcement. And it's really principally a financial regulator. It's not principally an enforcement authority. Enforcement is one of the things that it does, but it but it really is principally a financial regulator. And so it, it engages in this, in, in its core regulatory function, it means it has this really broad reach across the derivatives and the commodities markets. And enforcement sort of filling a function there, I think one of the things that folks in enforcement recognized is uh, there are certain things that the CFTC has, I think, particular comparative advantages on relative to DOJ from an enforcement perspective, has an enormous amount of data, gets an enormous amount of leads, gets you know, a, a, a tremendous number of kind of initial case level workups and initial investigations. And then a question becomes, okay, how do you move it from kind of an early to mid stage into the kind of closing stages? Or how do you, from an enforcement perspective, think about something that may not, you may not have evidence of the kind of egregious type conduct, as Avi mentioned, that could lead to a DOJ investigation or prosecution, but the development of further evidence could potentially get you there. DOJ has tools the CFTC doesn't. DOJ can execute search warrants. DOJ has federal agents. It has the capability to engage in, in covert operations that the CFTC doesn't. And so I think there was a recognition at the CFTC that there was real value add from an investigation perspective in bringing, in bringing DOJ along. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons, Avi, that it took a little bit of time is that it just sort of flowed naturally from the progression and the development post Dodd-Frank. Yeah, I mean, j- just to respond quickly, uh, your point about the the technological developments that have facilitated the case building, I-, I think is spot on, right? We have, at both of our former agencies, data analytics capabilities that just didn't exist 10 years ago, right? And that, I think, has been instrumental, at least on the DOJ side, to you know prosecutors being able to bring these type of cases in, in parallel with the CFTC attorneys. But look, you know, Part of this does come back to a particular moment in time when you were running the CFTC enforcement and Rob Zink was running the broad section. And there was just sort of a meeting of the minds about working together and working together closely. And, and I give the two of you a lot of credit for doing that. I think that really was a moment that, at least on the DOJ side, we really started to think about the CFTC in the same way that, I'm trying to speak transparently here, Folks thought about the SEC for a long time, right? I mean, I think, you know, enterprising attorneys at the DOJ for a long time have treated the SEC as a client, right? And gone out and tried to solicit business from the SEC and get referrals. That, I think, what happened during your tenure and and, and Rob's tenure, and I played a role in that, was really kind of a, a moment when we when the CFTC DOJ relationship started to to be the same way, I think, right? And, and to the credit of both agencies, I think that has really spread beyond the broad section, right? We yeah. we had a number of wins together, right? Um, the JPM case, the Glencore case, a bunch of those wins. And I think I think probably other prosecutors and other offices outside of the broad section saw those and wanted in on the action. 
right? And so now, you know, you historically had strong relationships with certain DOJ offices, Northern District of Illinois, of course, SDNY, but I think increasingly other prosecutorial offices, other components of DOJ started wanting to do CFTC cases more. And so that I think has, you know, success builds on success, right? And so I think that has also contributed to the number and diversity of cases at the CFTC and DOJ are doing alongside each other right now. Bobby, you're totally right. And I think one one benefit that we had is there was a model. I came from STNY and I had seen that model really work well on the DOJ, STNY, SEC side. And I think when we looked at it, we didn't think that there was any reason that that model also couldn't work on the DOJ, CFTC side in the commodities and derivatives space. And you know, I think we benefited from some of the from some of the good work that others had done in kind of building out that model, and we're able to we're able to implement it. I will say, and I'm kind of curious on on your perspective, Avi, now being on the defense side. I do think, yeah, you know, at least for me, as I think about this trend, and I think, okay, is it going to reckless government overreach? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that's where I was going. No, I I do think that it is it. We, we can talk about the. DOJ and CFTC parallel cases, but I think there's actually a broader trend that you know is something that we always try to keep front of mind on the defense side, which is if you you mentioned data, we talked about DOJ and the different uh, investigative tools that DOJ has. One thing we haven't really talked about is the the whistleblower program and and, and the rise in the number of and the increase in the number of tips, complaints, and referrals coming from the whistleblower office. I think. Chris, Kurt, you guys know this, but the CFTC's whistleblower office was established with Dodd-Frank also. So it's a little more than a decade old. And there have been- my new, uh, I'm going to give a quick, I'm going to give a quick shout out. My new, my old trial partner on the Vorley case, Brian Young, is now running the CFTC whistleblower office and he's going to do a fantastic job. Right, right. And, and I think what it means is now, if you're on the receiving end of an inquiry from the CFTC, I think one of the things that has to be in your mind is what do we think is the status of this investigation? I think at some point historically, you could have had a really pretty fair amount of comfort that the initial outreach to the company was the agency's first real outreach information gathering effort in the area. I think that's less true now. I think it's much more likely that they'll already have some sort of a view about the underlying conduct because of data analysis some sort of view about the underlying conduct because of steps the DOJ has taken or because they're getting information from from a whistleblower. And I think that has a number of strategic, that raises a number of strategic considerations for any company or individual who's facing one of those sorts of inquiries in how to respond. I couldn't agree more. I mean, so both because of data-based detection tools that the CFTC and DOJ have, to affirmatively build their own cases, and also because of the already strong, but even still strengthening whistleblower pipeline, I think you're right, right? That the government writ large has more, has greater ability these days to detect um, and investigate misconduct before the company or individual subject is even aware of it. And so just to continue where I think you were heading, that should affect not only how you respond once you get an initial request for information or subpoena or whatever it is, it should really play into how you handle uh, self-report considerations, right? The idea that the government could, 
you know, and may already, right, have received a whistleblower complaint, right? By the time that you, you know, representing the board of directors or in-house counsel become aware of an issue, you have to, I think, really consider and take into account the fact that the government may already hear about this from whistleblowers or otherwise. And that needs to affect not only you know, how you handle it and what kind of internal investigation you do, but the speed at which you do it, right? And whether you want to plant a flag and lay down a marker with the government that, hey, we got this, we don't know everything yet, we're looking at it, we're taking it seriously, but here's what we do know, we'll keep you posted. Because I don't know, I don't have the statistics, Jamie, you probably do, but the number of whistleblower complaints these days has grown probably exponentially over the past, you know, five years. Yeah, yeah, it really has, both in terms of sheer number. And though the data on this is a little difficult to get because they don't tie the whistleblower awards to the actual cases, publicly at least, I think in terms of the number of whistleblower awards that and whistleblower tips that led to some of the more significant cases. Uh, Avi, the, the self-reporting point that, that you raise, I think, is a really interesting one. And I mean, it could be it's a, a, a whole separate conversation. I'll just sort of note one thing you know, Chris, Kurt, you guys were talking a little bit about that. How does DOJ operate? Back when we let parallel- talk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> in parallel with the CFTC and these like highly regulated environments. There's one other thing that comes up when you're, con- when you're contemplating these self-reporting decisions is when companies are operating in these highly regulated environments, there are so many touch points that there often are off- often some of the considerations that come into the self-report is where are the other places that we'd be required to disclose this? And so it's a little bit different from having, you know, a company out of the world that doesn't have any regulatory obligations or regulatory touch points where the analysis could be, boy, do we go self-report this or hope that nobody finds out about it? I think uh, the analysis in the highly regulated environment in a number of different areas can shift depending on what the different touch points are and what the different reporting and disclosure obligations may be independent of a self-report. And, and Jamie, I, I just to, again, make sure that Chris and Kurt don't get to talk at all. I, I think I'm often surprised at, I think, what is an incorrect perception that some folks have that um, the government doesn't really talk to each other, right. right? So this is something you need to think about when you're even contemplating a self-report. Look, if you get an inquiry, let's say from the CME or from ICE or from some regulated market, I think you have to assume at that point that the CME is going to talk to the CFTC at some point, right? And that the CFTC may talk to the DOJ, right? And that, you know, at the point at which you're even getting initial inquiries at all, you really ought to consider that enforcement broadly construed is aware of the conduct or could be within a reasonable, uh, reasonably short period of time. And, and by the same token, DOJ's position has long been that a self-report, self-disclosure to the CFTC does not mean that you have checked the box of self-reporting right. to DOJ because the agencies may not talk about that matter, right? I don't think it's the case, you know, even when there is consultation and discussion about, you know, dockets, that every single matter on anyone's docket gets discussed, right? Certainly not every single self-report and self-disclosure gets discussed between the agencies. So, you know, what I always tell folks is if you're self-reporting to one agency, you really are um, taking a needless risk if you don't self-report to both. So I, I want to cut in there because this is a, a point that I think clients often want to understand, and that is sort of the the how, 
right? How do the agencies communicate? You know, I'll, I'll often hear from clients, how would that happen? What would that look like? What's going to cause someone at the SEC or the CFTC or another agency to call someone at the DOJ? And who are they going to call, right? Are there formal channels? Are there informal channels? Was there, you know, a phone on Rob Zink's desk that connected directly to Jamie's? I, I just tell us a little bit more about how those the signal. Yeah, yeah, is there a network a of bat phones, right? That are connecting all the directors? The, yeah, the Zink right. signal just, just in just the clouds over DC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, tell us a little bit about the about the, the nuts and bolts. How does it happen? Yeah, I mean, all of the above, right? So so talking about formal channels first. You know, there are periodic meetings, you know, whether they're quarterly or, or whatnot, there are periodic meetings, right, at which agency principals come together and have a discussion about parallel cases and also potentially interesting new cases on their dockets, right? And whether there is room to collaborate on those cases. I think there's also high-level discussions about, you know, strategic initiatives and, you know, trends that they're seeing in their respective areas. So that happens, and that's usually, you know, attended us as said by by high-level folks. Um, there also are, of course, whenever there's a report, there's you know, whenever there's a, a referral, right? There's always kind of a letter of communication, and usually there are calls around that. But the real work gets done as it does almost in any industry, in any type of job during informal conversations, right? I mean, Jamie and I spoke, Rob and Jamie spoke, Jamie's right-hand man, Neil Chopra, and I spoke multiple times a day, right? I mean, there are calls happening all the time. Jamie, how often do you think that you and Rob spoke when you were at the DOJ? Yeah. Multiple times a day. Yeah, right. So there's just, there's constant communication. Right. And, you know, especially for folks who are in the same city, there's, you know, there are frequent meetings also. I think the illness that a lot of us suffer from, right, is sort of uh, almost like a, an addiction to the job in some ways. Right. I mean, I think for all of us that were doing this, we really, we really lived and breathed these jobs for a long time. And so, you know, even a lot of our informal socialization turned into work talk for a long time. And so, you know, I think the communication maybe I'm not saying that's necessarily the degree and frequency of communication all the time, you know, between every DOJ component and the CFTC or SEC or what have you, but that's the way that we worked, right? And I think that was the way that we achieved, you know, the outcomes that we achieved during the relatively short period of time that we were there. Yeah, uh, Avi, I think that's right. And, you know, Kurt, you can think about it as having the kind of formal channels or the clear legal the, or the clear legal rules. There are some formal channels and there are some clear legal rules. There are certain things, for example, that DOJ is not permitted to share with the CFTC. There are certain kind of formal things that the CFTC needs to do before making an official referral over to the Department of Justice. And so I think often you have these discussions about how does DOJ work together with the CFTC, and it often focuses on those kinds of formal rules and formal channels, and those are important. But as with anything else, you have these two agencies that have their own independent mandate, they have their own independent mission, and yes, they want to work together, but they, 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 have, they, they have to work kind of together in parallel to accomplish uh, uh, each of their goals and their shared goals. And I think that best way, at least, that we figured out to keep everything on track was to be in constant communication. And it may be that the Department of Justice was gonna do something and giving us a heads up on something that I said, 
you know, boy, I don't totally agree with that. Or that Avi yeah. would say, I don't totally agree with that. And you'd want to you'd want to kind of give the courtesy of the conversation and the communication. And it comes in the course of a broader relationship where you sort of know that everybody's moving forward with kind of a common understanding of the common goal that you're hoping to achieve. And each of these little conversations then become part of that bigger relationship, which ultimately I think worked. We wanted some of those. I don't agree with that conversations today. You guys are getting along. Vigorous agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, there is a fair amount of obviously collegiality and agreement, but to Jamie's point, there were moments of friction, right? I mean, there were substantive disagreements. You know, I'm not even just talking about like, you know, one trial attorney didn't get along with a different trial attorney and someone didn't return someone's call. I mean, there are, there were significant substantive agreements about, you know, directions of cases or, or the speed, you know, which one agency was working or how to deal with a cooperator or, you know, what charges there was evidence for, whatever it is. Now, Jamie's right, right? They're, they're two different agencies and, and they make their own decisions and have their own equities. And, and I think folks on both sides are really mindful at least when we were there, right? but but I think this remains true, really mindful of not conducting joint investigations and of, and of staying away from that line and of, you know, keeping folks on the other side informed and, and acting in parallel and not trying to step on toes. But people really do take seriously the idea that a parallel investigation should not turn into a joint investigation unless it's necessary with all the attendant discovery obligations for DOJ prosecutors. So, Look, there was friction. We did our best to work through it. And I think we were successful in that more often than not. But there are times when you just have to say, look, we're each going to do our own thing because our respective stakeholders want it that way. And so be it. And that that's fine. I mean, there were cases, one of which I, I ended up trying, right, where the CFTC declined to take action and the DOJ charged and we ultimately convicted a trial. And that was, look, it probably would have been better uh, for the DOJ, if the CFTC had had filed, but that wasn't the agency's determination, and we went it alone, and it worked out fine for us anyway. But you know, I, I, <laughs> see, um, o- 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 overreaching government. I mean, that's what is. I'm talking about. <laughs> there it is. Well, I want to jump a little bit more into the the weeds of, of that government uh, of those divisions because both of you kind of had the unique responsibility and execution over the past decade or so of really reinforcing, pun intended, a lot of the programs that you helped oversee. So, Avi, starting with you, right, the Criminal Commodities and Derivatives Enforcement Program was kind of your baby within the fraud section. How did that kind of development and, and growth really change while, while you were there? And what are you most proud of from, from where it stands today? It started with a very high-profile loss. So back in 2018, when I was still a line prosecutor in Connecticut, I tried and very publicly lost the Flotron trial, which was a spoofing trial. And, you know, that that really was the genesis for me, at least, right, of of wanting to try to do better and to build a program around the lessons that we and I in particular learned from that case. Right. So with an unbelievable chip on my shoulder, I moved down to D.C. after that and thought to myself, well, you know, we'll kind of get right back to work. We'll learn the lesson from the case and, you know, we'll um, kind of change the narrative really quickly. And then COVID hit and and everything sort of stopped for a while. And the next of those cases that went to trial didn't happen until September 2020. Um, so it took some time and it was a rocky start, right? But 
the program really had its genesis with the spoofing cases. And in those cases, we ended up convicting 12 bankers, most of them executive directors or, or even one managing director at global financial institutions and within a you know tendent series of corporate prosecutions. That helped us, I think, to gain some credibility with the defense bar, internally with the Department of Justice, you know, where there was some, some skepticism after that initial loss about the viability of the program and our ability to do it. But those wins, I think, helped to turn things around. But you can't build a program on just one violation, even one as unbelievably sexy as spoofing. But so what we tried to do was we tried to take the broader lessons from those cases, right, uh, and apply those to new to new fact patterns. And those lessons included, right, really trusting the data and working to corroborate the data. So what I mean by that is, you know, I think it's very unlikely that you're going to have a criminal prosecution based only on patterns that are observable in data, um, no matter how strong those patterns are, right? So learning the lessons about, you know, how to corroborate that with witness testimony, cooperator testimony with e-communications that you obtained from search warrants and learning lessons about, you know, charging decisions in a way, frankly, that will resonate uh, with a jury um, and building cases with an eye towards what they're going to look like three years later at at trial. Some of those seem um, like they should be pretty obvious to any prosecutor, but, you know, in a new space, right, in the derivatives markets, um, it, it took a bit of adjustment to learn those. So we expanded the program beyond spoofing to include benchmark manipulation. You saw that in the Glencore case to include insider trading. You mentioned this at the outset, Chris, under 180.1, um, with a series of cases in the natural gas futures market down in the Southern District of Texas. But we also broaden it to include more traditional areas of fraud, like, like I mentioned, the, the cherry picking fraudulent allocation case, uh, a bunch of retail fraud cases that we did in parallel to the CFTC. And of course, we haven't even talked about it yet, but digital assets, um, right? So what began as a program with a pretty narrow focus on spoofing uh, was able to expand because with each win, we got more resources, just to be completely candid, more prosecutors to do the cases, more prosecutors willing to do the cases, more resources, by which I literally mean money to do data analytics, uh, and the credibility to expand our purview to do a broader set of cases around the country. So by yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'll be all I was going to add to that is one thing that you touched on, but I think is important to really kind of amplify is not just the different types of violations and the different types of conduct, but what you described about taking kind of an incredibly complicated data set, making sense of it, figuring out how to corroborate it, figuring out how to build a case and develop other evidence of it, and then explain it to a judge and then a lay jury. I thought that was one of the more interesting parts of the spoofing program that of course presented itself in the spoofing cases. But as you and we were developing those cases, I remember thinking at the time, this is the future of litigation. This is the future of trial. Like I think if you look at the way that trials are conducted over the next three, four, five, ten 10 years, I think it's these types of cases. I think it's the types of cases that start with some sort of data analytics that then get kind of refined down. And then, you know, there, there's one aspect of it where you're really digging deep into the data and almost getting super expert and super granular in the particular activity. And then you have to broaden it back out and you have to kind of raise up to a level where you can actually explain it to somebody who has no background in futures trading, for example, 
And, and I think exactly right. it's futures trading and it's spoofing in that context. But I think when you think about trials in the financial regulatory and white collar space, I think if we're having this conversation in five years, all the trials are like that. I always said when I was talking to new prosecutors about building these cases, you got to do three things with a jury. You got to explain to them what you're talking about, right? What the market is, what the products is, how the trading works, what's a bid, what's an offer, what's a spread, right? It, you got to make them understand that the defendants did what you claim that they did. And third, most important, you got to make them care, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, talking about, well, you know, they moved up the bid ask by 10 cents for a second and a half in a derivatives market you've never heard about doesn't exactly, you know, hit home for most jurors. And if you can't do that last part, and if you're not focused on that last part, like the why should you care part, you're going to lose that trial, right? Because in front of you is a living, breathing person who's standing there and their family is in the front row. And you're going to lose the trial if you can't explain to the jury why this matters. It's not an element of any offense, but you're just not doing your job if you're not thinking about that from day one. So, you know, we always tried to have a balance of cooperator testimony, right? I was there with him. He taught me how to do this. That's how I know that he did it. And some expert testimony to kind of explain the the trading patterns and, and what you can discern from the trading patterns, but also as to why you should care, right? Experts talked a bit about that and market integrity and how the conduct harms the market. We always had somebody from the exchange come in and talked about, you know, rules expectations, why the integrity of the market matters, why the market itself matters. And then you'd have, you know, a couple of victims come in. Now, you know, the victim testimony can be hit or miss on these cases, but but always someone that come in and would say, yeah, I, you know, th this is what happened and here's how it affected me. Sometimes you can get in that last part of the testimony and sometimes you can't, but boy, you sure ought to try. So it's more complex with these types of, I think, financial instruments cases. But I agree with you that this is what's happened. Like, you know, the Archegos, that SDNY case, the Archegos case at SDNY. I don't know that you would have seen that type of case brought five years ago, right? Th that's a really complicated case involving complicated financial products. And you're seeing a lot of that these days, not just from broad session at SDNY, but increasingly from around the country. And prosecutors are really getting adept, I think, at speaking trader jargon and speaking data in a way that yeah. helps them not only sort of explain things to a jury, but to prepare to cross-examine defendants, you absolutely need those skills. So uh, obviously, we've talked a little bit about litigation strategy and obviously kind of the work of the fraud section, you know, in that specific criminal commodities and derivatives enforcement program, really growing out of maybe- Sorry, Chris, you've got to just define terms. Jamie, litigation is when you take a case to court <laughs> in a contested setting. Excellent. Excellent. That'll be uh, yeah, part of the yeah. 101 episode. So, exactly. you know, we talked about some of the opportunistic, if you will, developments within the criminal commodities and derivatives enforcement program of, of cases coming down the pike that, that the fraud section had the ability to, to serve. And Jamie, I, I mean, you took a, a good role at the CFTC's Division of Enforcement as well, kind of standing up task forces right around some of these key issues. And I want to give you some credit here, too. There's some very impressive stats uh, during your tenure at the division. You know, the most enforcement actions in a given year happened while you were there in the last fiscal year of your tenure, uh, including the most retail fraud actions, the fourth highest total of monetary relief north of $1.3 billion, uh, the largest ever spoofing and manipulation case, 16 actions with parallel federal criminal prosecution. So uh, it sounds like, Jamie, you really took a lot of, uh, of effort and focus here to really bring the division to a great place. And, and I'd like to hear more about that as well as 
Are they keeping up now that you've kind of passed the baton and, and moved into private practice? Yeah, well, 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 well thanks, Chris. Look, in, in running enforcement of the CFTC, I tried to keep in mind kind of what we talked about earlier, that the CFTC is a financial regulator that regulates this enormous derivatives and commodities market. And uh, I think one of the things that you try to do in enforcement is try to make sure that you're bringing the right cases and devoting your resources to the right places. But I think at the same time, we wanted to be sure that we were actually developing a program and that we were thinking about things on a programmatic level and that we were thinking about deterrence and achieving the goals that we wanted to achieve really across the division and as part of the commission's overall mission. So not just about this particular case or that particular case, but what kind of impact will we have on the market generally? Why do we want to have that impact on the market? What are the things we're trying to achieve? Are there sorts of things that we can put in place that could provide market participants the right incentives on the front end to implement the right controls, have the right compliance policies, potentially kind of target potential misconduct to deter it before it happens in the first place. And so a lot of what we did was thinking about, we spend time thinking about things on a programmatic level. So you you talk about task forces. One of the things that we did is we set up task forces in certain priority areas to try to coordinate efforts and activity across the division. The CFTC, unlike the SEC, doesn't have specialized units. Each one of the different teams and each one of the different offices could do any type of case. I think there are a lot of really good positive aspects of that. But there are also things that I think you need to recognize are risks that need to be controlled for. One is you can have inconsistent application or approaches. And so if you've got a team in New York that has one approach to manipulation cases and a team in Chicago that has another approach to manipulation cases, I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's fair for the market and market participants and lawyers to expect that when they're dealing with the same agency and the same division of enforcement, that they're going to get the same approach. And so we tried to identify a number of these areas, spoofing and manipulation, digital asset, the Bank Secrecy Act, misappropriation of non-public information, those sorts of things. There were these sort of developing areas that were priority areas, but where the approach to the to development of the cases and to the law was somewhat developing to try to make sure that there were uh, that, that there was consistency in that development. The other thing, and actually, as I step back from it and get a little further away from my time at the CFTC, I actually think this is one of the more significant things that we did. We wrote and published the first enforcement manual. So taking all of the different policies and practices within the CFTC that sort of existed within the building, some of which were written down in formal policies and procedures, and some of them were practices. And putting pen to paper and putting it in a manual, I think both for enforcement staff, so that they had a resource to look at, but then making it public, so that market participants, defense lawyers, anybody engaging with the CFTC will will have available to them the kind of basic rules of the road for CFTC division of enforcement. I think that kind of fits within the line of progression that we were talking about as you think about the development of the program. You get to a point then where you have enough of these policies and procedures that you think, okay, we got to organize this and we got to consolidate it. And by the way, we should make it public. That makes sense. That's fair. Uh, Ultimately, what we're trying to do is be transparent about what we're doing here so that we can affect behavior in a positive way. And I think as I get a little more removed from it and I think about the kinds of things that we tried to do to 
bring about that sort of coordination. I think the enforcement manual is something that, that, that I often come back to. Hey, Jamie, can I push you on that for one sec? I love the enforcement manual. Great effort transparency. One of the things that you, know, you hear sometimes about the CITC is not a lot of transparency around how fines are calculated, right? The DOJ has sentencing guidelines. Um, you think that there's going to be any movement at the CFTC towards increased or increased transparency on fines? Yeah. And so, Avi, I think it's a, it's a really good question. I think there are two two points on that. One, uh, I I think it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge on the defense side. I think it's a challenge on the agency side. And I think one of the reasons it's a challenge is as opposed to DOJ that has a sentencing commission and thousands of cases brought across the country in a number of different jurisdictions and all of these different data points that you can kind of find a rough middle that could serve as the kind of midpoint for the guidelines. You don't have that at the CFTC where they bring, you know, let's call it a hundred cases a year, but how many of those are manipulation cases? How many of those are registration cases? I think as a practical matter, it's more difficult to find like cases, is sort of point number one, which makes it a little bit challenging. Point number two, which I think makes it challenging is the CFC litigates fewer cases than DOJ. And so more of these resolutions are achieved through settlement than by having some third party neutral arbiter actually decide what the number is. And I think that probably gives less confidence in the number. And I think it's fair to think that there are other considerations beyond just what now, the appropriate fine is if you were just looking at the conduct and you had to argue it to a neutral arbiter. And then the third thing I'd say is I do think that we have a tendency to overstate the certainty of fine and penalty amounts in the DOJ context. I think if you think about corporate resolutions, I think there's a lot of discretion in terms of the type of resolution. Is it a guilty plea? Is it a DPA? Is it an NPA? When is the government requiring the not just a fine, but forfeiture or restitution? Uh, how are they calculating those numbers? How do you calculate loss? That, I guess I would say even on the DOJ side, even where you have a fully fleshed out sentencing guidelines, a dedicated sentencing commission, you have a whole sentencing manual that's much more detailed than anything that the SEC or CFTC could ever put out. I think even then there's a fair amount of uncertainty and, and argument and disagreement about where those numbers may ultimately shake out. All right, let's pivot a little bit while we've got you. We want to talk a bit about priorities, which you know can be a little bit of a moving target. I think, you know, Jamie, maybe some of the things that featured in the first annual report that, that came out under uh, during your tenure may be different than what you would see today. But Kind of looking down the road, I'd like to get both of your perspectives on, from a commodities enforcement standpoint, what do we think are going to be the DOJ's and the CFTC's respective priorities, right? Maybe it's digital assets, maybe it's more spoofing and manipulation. I don't know, but um, tell us what you think. And, you know, Jamie, do you want to kick us off and, and tell us sure. what you think is happening? Yeah, sure. So, Kurt, I think there are certain things that the CFTC and DOJ are going to do in the commodity space that really aren't going to change. They're going to be doing the retail fraud cases. They're going to be doing manipulation cases. They're going to be, sure, CFTC at least, going to be pursuing registration type violations or other sorts of regulatory violations. I think there are two, maybe three things that really stand out to me right now. One, and I know we're not really focusing on digital assets here, but I, I don't think you can talk about priorities at the CFTC right now without talking about digital assets. The 
CHC's last fiscal year ended at the end of September of 2023, and they issued a press release where they went through a summary of the cases that they brought. I think one of the notable points is about 50% of the cases that they brought had some connection to digital assets. That's enormous. And if you think about the devotion of resources to digital assets in the commodities and derivative space, given the, the breadth of the market outside digital assets, I think it's really striking that 50% of the enforcement actions would relate to digital assets. And you sometimes have this conversation in litigated cases, well, you know, should this fit within the CFTC's jurisdiction? Should it fit within the SEC's jurisdiction? Do you need to have legislation? Is this the kind of major question under the major questions doctrine that you'd expect Congress to, to weigh in on? And one of the responses from the agencies has been, well, this is a relatively small segment of the market. This is not the kind of major question that would lead to a major questions doctrine. But I, I think that's undermined just a bit by maybe more than just a bit by the devotion of resources to the area. And I think that's sort of point number one is you really can't think about the CFTC's enforcement priorities without thinking about digital asset assets. Number two, you are seeing, I think, more of a focus on what traditionally might have been viewed as strict liability regulatory offenses that may have been handled or addressed in the first instance by one of the policy divisions. I think you're seeing a, a higher likelihood that those cases get referred over to CFTC enforcement. And Avi, to your question that you asked at, at the outset here, you're right. You've not seen a pure criminal registration case, but what you have seen is criminal cases where it starts with a failure to register, and then there are underlying derivative criminal offenses or violations based on the obligations that one would have had were they properly registered. So you're required to register as an FC, as, as CFT-regulated intermediary, SAFCM, Futures Commission Merchant. And by virtue of your registration, you have certain AML, KYC, bank secrecy obligations, the failure to comply with which can give rise to criminal liability. And so I think it, it, you, you do see the criminal involvement in, in that area, but even outside the criminal involvement, I think you're seeing more of a focus on these types of regulatory type violations. And then the third is I, I, I do think you're continuing to see a focus on the data analytics. And I would expect you'd start to see more in the cross-market area, areas where there's a correlation between different markets. So spoofing, you often think about as manipulative trading within the same market. And they, the agency, the, the CFTC and DOJ are, I think, getting more adept at conducting that same type of data analytics across correlated Avi, what about you? What are you seeing in terms of priorities? Yeah, I, I'm not going to repeat everything that Jamie said, although I agree with much of it. But I think he's right about cross-market manipulation, right? So when you see correlated instruments, I, I do think you're going to see more, more emphasis around that. Look, as the cases get more complex, I think you will see a smaller number of cases, is my prediction, right? So I don't know that we're ever going to hit the pure numbers that we hit, you know, a couple of years ago, because I think the focus these days is more likely to be on what they were call what they would call sort of higher impact, higher quality cases. So, you know, whenever you're doing, let, let's say you take a cross market spoofing case. So it's right? quite, like, admi quite an admission, Avi, that there could be a higher quality case than the one that the, the, than the ones that you brought. I didn't say they're <laughs> right. About it. I see. 
So so take a cross market spoofing case. Let's just say, you know, cash, the cash treasuries market and the treasury futures market. And so instead of having to get all of the treasury's futures data from the CME and analyze all of that, which is terabytes of data, you now have to get all of that and you have to get all of the cash trading data, which is traded, you know, OTC. And so you have to go to multiple different places to get it. And then you've got to overlay all of that data onto each other and control for the fact that there's different fields and different columns. By the way, your viewers are going to love this discussion, I'm sure. You'd be surprised. <laughs> your Han 1 value is your Han 2 value, right? And control for different time zones and all of that. That's incredibly time-consuming and most importantly, expensive work. Right? So if you're going to bring one of those cases, it requires a pretty significant outlay of money from the department and time from our vendors and, and the attorneys and the experts that we have working with us. You just can't do 10 of those cases a year, right? So I think what you're going to see is a really focused effort to bring a couple sort of bigger, more complex cases in what have been regarded as under-prosecuted areas, open market manipulation, cross-market manipulation, different, I think, sort of exotic or different exotic financial instruments, and really to try to achieve some measure of deterrence in those areas. Basically, the message to market participants is, you think we're only looking here and here, but actually, no, we're also looking here. Mm -hmm. If you can bring even one or two of those cases um, I think it will have the impact that folks are hoping it will have, um, right? Cross-market manipulation is something that people have known has happened for years. I mean, I recall sitting across from a cooperating witness, you know, who, who would tell me how people at his firm were doing it, right? From, from a commodities future products to an ETF. And he was like, this is an open secret. And we know that we can get away with it because no one's looking. And he meant both within his own firm, but also... Look, the SEC has half of that data. The CFTC has half of that data. Both agencies, I think, are pretty possessive about their own data. And there's um, historically not been a huge amount of sharing between those agencies. That's changing now a bit. But And DOJ just didn't have the resources to do this, the synthesizing of the data itself. So I think, you know, there's an awareness of that deficit now and an effort to try to work through it. And so, you know, I can't, predict with any certainty what product or what market. But I, I do think you're going to see a bit more of that cross-market work in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. Well, I'm very glad, Avi and Jamie, you both took the time to give us some predictions because we'll have you back on in a few months to tell you if you were right or wrong to, to see how those things go. Love but. it. Love it. Avi, Jamie, we really appreciate both of you taking the time. You know, you've got busy schedules now, I'll say, that you're back in the private practice world, maybe comparatively, although you did just document a lot of the hard work and effort that was put in both in your government service, too. So we appreciate that and look forward to maybe having you back on to talk about those predictions. Great. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. Thanks very much, Chris uh, and Kurt. Really appreciated you having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Avi Perry of Quinn Emanuel and Jamie McDonald of Sullivan and Cromwell. We always love to hear from our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to discuss on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.